Hi, I'm Michael Hawk, and welcome to Nature's Archive Podcast, where I interview some of the most interesting and creative people on the forefront of conservation, ecology, birding, and environmental education. If you have a fascination with the natural world, this podcast is for you. My promise to you is that you'll not only learn what my guests have accomplished, but also how and why. And I also promise that you'll learn plenty of fascinating things about the nature that surrounds us. So give it a listen. And if you truly care about the environment and enjoyed what you heard, please take a moment to subscribe, leave feedback on Apple Podcasts or your favorite service, and share this episode with a friend. Thank you. My guest today is Dr. Yiwei Wong. Yiwei is the Executive Director at the San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory, or SFBBO for short. Yiwei grew up in the South Bay and is called the Bay Area her home for most of her life. She attended Cornell University and double majored in biology and psychology. Returning to the West Coast, she worked for a variety of organizations that focused on birds and mammals, including an internship at the Golden Gate Raptor Observatory and a season as a field technician in SFBBO's Snowy Plover program. She then attended UC Santa Cruz and received her PhD in environmental studies. Her dissertation focused on learning how human development impacts mountain lions and their relationships with other smaller carnivores. After completing her PhD, she worked in northern Kenya to coordinate research efforts among four NGOs to study regional human development and wildlife movement as part of a project supported by the Nature Conservancy and the Wildlife Conservation Network. And prior to her role at SFBBO, she was a postdoctoral scholar in Santa Barbara, where she worked to increase and facilitate the management and sharing of ecological data. In this episode, we discuss the mission and projects of the SFBBO and what it means to be a bird observatory. Yue reveals some of the inner workings of such an organization, including what it is like to run an environmental organization, SFBBO's volunteer program, how they engage with science advisors, some new and future projects, and a deep dive into the bird banding operation, which is really fascinating. Since we jump into the topic of bird banding, a little bit of background. Bird banding is the process of collecting detailed scientific measurements of individual birds by temporarily capturing birds using nearly invisible mist nets. These measurements are used to create data sets that track bird populations, morphologies, migration patterns, and much more. Additionally, a small band is added to the leg of the bird to facilitate future tracking. Doing this in a way that is safe for the birds and scientifically rigorous is a fascinating subject and requires thorough training. We also get to discuss Yiwei's and SFBBO's commitment to diversity, inclusivity, and equity, and how they're embodying it. And I had a lot of fun asking Yiwei about some of her other interesting projects, including her PhD project documenting the energetics of mountain lions around human habitation, and her eye-opening experiences in Australia that really redirected her career path to the one that she's on today. So without further delay, Yiwei Wang. Yiwei, thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks, Michael. It's great to be here. As listeners heard in the intro, there are so many interesting starting points we could have for this conversation, but I thought the best thing that we could do is just start with the organization that you lead currently, the San Francisco Bay Bird Observatory. Can you tell me what it is and what the mission is? Sure. So we call it SFBBO for short, and the observatory was founded in 1981 by a group of San Jose State students and their professor. And the impetus for founding the organization was basically these individuals realized there wasn't really very much information collected on water birds in the San Francisco Bay. Even though the Bay is a really important migratory hotspot, there's lots of birds, as you would know if you walk around near the Bay, but there just wasn't any information about what all the development and salt ponds, things like that, were doing to the birds. So it was founded primarily to gather that information. And in its founding, it was a volunteer-run organization. And the volunteer theme has really been carried in the last four decades to today. Today, we have a lot more professional staff, and we do research beyond just water birds. But essentially, our mission is still the same. It's to learn about birds in this area specifically, and then also to work on conservation issues and habitat restoration issues that could really impact birds. Usually that involves scientific studies and working with the public. We try to involve volunteers as much as possible, but we also do quite a lot of environmental education work, primarily because that was the mission, um, is to understand what the birds are doing and to educate people about it so that they feel like they want to help protect the birds. I think my first introduction to SFBBO was by way of the banding station that's up just at the south tip of the San Francisco Bay. 
And I understand that that banding station has been in existence a very long time as well. So I, it, it's surprising to me that the, actually the Waterbirds were the impetus for SFBBO. Because I always, in my mind, for some reason, had thought that the banding station was the beginning. Yes, you're kind of right. The banding station actually started separately as the Coyote Creek Field Station. So similar idea there, there were people who wanted to, um, volunteers who wanted to learn more about birds in the area. And then they created this path with the Santa Clara Valley Water District, which allowed them to band on their land. Um, and it's been a great way to gather information, again, almost for 40 years. I think the banding station was founded in 1982, so just after the SFBBO actually was. And then I can't remember exactly when, but sometime in the mid-90s, the two merged. So we brought the banding station volunteer group and the water bird volunteer group and together became closer to SFBBO as we know it today. That's interesting. A little bit of history that I was unaware of. So one thing that I, I've been wanting to ask somebody for a long time, and uh, and we'll get back to some of the specific projects that SFBBO is working on. But one thing I've noticed across the country is there are a lot of organizations that have bird observatories. Like there was one where I lived previously in Arizona, the Southeastern Arizona Bird Observatory. And it got me wondering, just by the name, Bird Observatory, do you have a common network? Do you share data? Uh, or is it just something that is a, a common name that lots of people use? That's a good question. And it's actually really interesting to me because every year, a couple of times a year, I will get a call from people asking us where our observatory is and where they can actually go see the birds. And there are some observatory out, observatories out there that have land where you can actually go out and observe. But a lot of them are called observatories, but really what we're doing is, you know, we're studying the birds, but we're, we don't own the land or protect the land that the birds are on. Um, and I do think that it is an informal network. It's not anything formalized. There's no shared funding. And I think different places are called bird observatories uh, that do quite different things. For example, there used to be one called the Point Reyes Bird Observatory. And they started out pretty similar to SFBBO, um, but they branched out a lot and they started doing a lot more work on climate change and on non-bird species. And now they've rebranded themselves as Point Blue, probably because they thought the bird observatory moniker was a bit restrictive. So I think across the country, some of the common themes are probably studying birds, trying to produce long-term data trends of birds and their conservation and how the different populations are doing. Ideally, we would be talking to each other more, but I think there's not really a formalized mechanism for that. But there is a Facebook group for Western or Pacific bird observatories that we're a member of. So our staff will definitely talk to staff from other bird observatories, but we don't do anything formalized at an organization level. I see. Yeah, I had this impression that perhaps there was a centralized organization similar to how there's a national Audubon society and then you have local chapters. Uh, but it sounds like if you have funding and a mission that relates to bird, you can just call yourself a bird observatory. Yeah, I think so. And I think probably all these places were founded for different reasons, not knowing that other bird observatories were out there. So we kind of find each other when projects and interests align, but otherwise we're not talking to each other regularly. Right. So I said that we would come back to some of the projects that SFBBO focuses on, and we've danced around the corners of, of Waterbirds and the Banding Station, but maybe you can just give a quick rundown as some of the top projects that you do focus on. So our organization currently works on a lot of projects. We're quite a lot bigger than we were 10 or 15 years ago. And um, we also have a lot more scientists at the master's and PhD level today than we did, say, 15 years ago. So our project list has grown as well as our interests have grown and as our staff have grown. Primarily, we focus on four different aspects of science. We have a habitat restoration program, which started about 10 years ago when David Thompson essentially brought his habitat restoration work and joined our organization. We focus on restoring transition zones, which are the habitats between tidal marsh and upland habitats. So these are areas, if you take a walk along the levees, of ponds in the Bay Area and the habitat that goes from 
where your track is on the levee to slightly higher ground. And this area provides great habitat for endangered species like salt marsh harvest mice and the Ridgeways rail, as well as many other local species. Some of the other bird programs we do focus on water birds, as you mentioned. So we've been working with the South Bay Salt Pond Restoration Project since its inception. And we focus on looking at how the project has impacted birds. So the purpose of the restoration project is to restore large tracts of land back to tidal wetlands and maintain some of the rest of it as managed ponds. Since the pond ecosystem was created to create salts, it's actually brought in a lot of different birds that we didn't use to host in the San Francisco Bay Area. So what we're trying to do with the restoration project is to make sure that we maintain those habitats for the new birds that use these pond ecosystems while supporting tidal wetland birds. So we wanna maintain an ecosystem that can support a diverse array of species. Um, what our biologists do for this is we monitor what birds are actually using which habitats and how those uses change when they restore a pond back into a, a, a wetland. We do modeling to help predict what we expect will happen if we restore certain ponds. So we can give the managers some idea of whether these are good ideas or which ponds they should focus on. Within the South Bay Pond System, we also work on snowy plovers and we've been working with them for about 15 years. Snowy plovers are one of those birds that we didn't used to have in the Bay Area, but since the creation of these salt ponds, they've actually found that to be really good habitat. And then in that time, snowy plovers have also been listed as a threatened species through the Endangered Species Act. So we wanna make sure that because they're threatened, we're not destroying more of their habitat here and reducing the population in the Bay Area. So what our scientists do is we work closely with the restoration project to monitor snowy plovers and to look at what's driving their success in terms of reproduction and survival and make recommendations to ensure that we're not creating a more difficult climate or condition for them to survive here. Right. And if I could jump in real quick, I've attended some of the talks that you put on um, that have discussed these efforts. And I wanted to fill in a couple of blanks for listeners who might not be familiar with the condition of the southern portion of the San Francisco Bay. For decades, much of the bay had been turned into salt evaporation ponds by uh, by corporations. And basically, uh, berms and levees were constructed that stopped the tidal flow and allowed them to control the water evaporation rates, change the pH, change the vegetation in the area. And right now, what you're talking about is this effort to naturalize some of these old evaporation ponds and find that balance to maintain the biodiversity. D did I get that about right? Yeah. And thanks for adding that. Um, we do quite a lot of things. So it's difficult to try to provide all the background and try to go into all the projects. The, the main thing I wanted to point out is that for those that are interested in this work, these talks, I correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that they're all still available on YouTube. They were recorded and posted there. I think you're talking about the Birdie Hour Talks. The Birdie Hour Talks, Which yes. are the new talks that we've um, put in place since the pandemic started. We did have previous talks on these issues that I don't think were all recorded. But since we started the Birdie Hour series, yes, they all are recorded and put on YouTube and on our website. So I'll make sure to link to those in the show notes. And sorry for the abrupt interruption there, but but go ahead and proceed with your, I know you have other projects that you want to talk about. <laughs> yeah, I think it's been, you know, one of the challenging things is now we do so much, it's hard to summarize it really quickly. So thank you for bearing with me. So with regard to what you just said, a lot of our focus is to make sure that we balance the restoration back into tidal wetland with supporting the species that now have lost habitat elsewhere, but are using our pond habitats in the San Francisco Bay. And most of your listeners probably are aware that the San Francisco Bay is a huge, important hotspot of migration along the Pacific Flyway. So many different bird species will use this landscape. And what we're trying to do is to make sure there is some kind of habitat for everyone to ensure that they all, you know, we're serving the needs of multiple birds. So just to continue, we also have a land bird program, which you mentioned. A big portion of that is the Coyote Creek uh, or CCFS field station. There we're running a very long-term, so almost 40 years banding station. And we've collected almost four decades worth of data 
on the types of birds that pass through Coyote Creek. The purpose of that banding station was for a couple of reasons. One is we wanted to look at how trends would change over time in response to development and also in response to restoration that was actually done by the water district along Coyote Creek. So it's quite a unique station in that it's both very urban and it operates year round and it's primarily operated by volunteers. So not very many banding stations have those three characteristics. The other projects that our land bird folks work on are have been looking at grasslands and fire and impacts on birds, as well as looking at burrowing owl conservation in the South Bay area, including looking at wintering birds, breeding birds, and doing some habitat management for burrowing owls. And then lastly, I just want to mention we do quite a lot of environmental education too. So in the last few years, my philosophy has been to try to collaborate as much as possible with other organizations who specialize in education because our specialty is primarily science and I didn't want everyone to become a trained educator. And instead I wanted us to just be able to provide our expertise in, in scientific research and link up with people who already are expert educators and be able to bring that programming and information out to folks. I think you're doing a great job in that. I enjoy the birdie hour talks and you know, the scientists that you have on staff, I, I know you said you don't want everyone to be an educator, but uh, they all seem really personable and approachable. And I found that really inviting as a volunteer. So thank you for, for your leadership in making that happen. Thanks. Yes. When we hire our staff, we definitely emphasize that outreach is going to be an important component of what they do. Partly because we are so volunteer driven, everybody will work with a volunteer at some time in their career when they join SFBBO, but also because outreach is actually a part of our mission. So bringing that education to folks is really important to us. It makes a lot of sense. I also noticed on your website that you have a really long list of highly credentialed science advisors that are outside of your core staff. And I'm wondering how do you leverage the science advisors? Like, what does that look like from an organizational standpoint? That's a good question. And it kind of depends on who on our staff is contacting them. So we do have several people who have done master's or PhDs. And as part of that training, you do a lot of networking and talking to other experts because you both have to get information about your research and also have somebody from outside judge your research. So we have a lot of good connections that way, but we're also taught to really approach folks if we don't know how to do something or if we want to get ideas or feedback on the work that we're putting out. So the way we work with our advisors, sometimes we will do collaborations with them in terms of creating projects together. Often we will ask them for advice. For example, if we want help with statistics or to look at um, a piece of programming that we're doing. And then sometimes we'll also help ask them to help us look at a grant. So either collaborating on a grant or just giving us advice on whether or not it's feasible or a reasonable thing to ask for. A lot of times we also use science advisors to get a sense of whether the projects we're proposing are valuable to the, the greater community, or if it's already something that they're aware of that's been done already, just to make sure we're not, that we're focusing on projects that have high value. In the past, we have had meetings with all the science advisors to kind of do some strategic planning or science planning with them. But more recently, we use them more like individual advisors. So we reach out to them on an issue we know they're an expert on, and we usually have individual relationships with them. Yeah, that's interesting to me, and I appreciate you giving me a little peek into the behind the scenes of an organization such as yours. I, I In my volunteer work, it's generally been very specific and directed, and I've always been curious about how things run. So thank you for that. So one thing that has always interested me is the banding station, and it's a really interesting operation for people who maybe have never actually seen a bird banding operation in practice. I would suggest seek one out, see if you can go visit at some point. And specific to the Coyote Creek Field Station that SFBBO manages, you mentioned that it's really heavily volunteer-oriented. Can you tell me a little bit about what it takes to become a bird bander in a volunteer capacity like that? Different banding stations have different training programs. And the way we do ours, it's quite an intensive and long program. So it's 
not easy to become a volunteer with it because you have to have a pretty long-term commitment, like two or three years. Part of the reason that's the case is because our training is so rigorous in, in order to ensure the safety of the birds. And the other reason is because we ban three days a week throughout the whole year. But the species you might encounter in December are totally different than the ones in May and totally different than the ones in September. So most of our banders are only at the station one or two times a month. So throughout a year, they only get a dozen or two dozen opportunities to interact with these birds. And that really means you get maybe three or four opportunities to interact with one species at any time of the year. So that what that's why it takes such a long time for folks to both learn to handle birds, but also learn about the 90 to 100 different species that might pass through the banding station enough that they can be trusted to independently carry out all the measurements and the data gathering on each bird. It's another level, I guess, compared to casual birding when it comes to the identification of the birds. Because I know that you're looking at, you're, you're aging the birds, you're looking at their weight, looking at their sex, trying to figure out if, the, you know, depending on the season, if they're prepared to migrate or not. There's there's a lot of other interesting things that goes into it that takes uh, a well-trained eye. Right. Yeah. So with each bird species, you might be identifying up to 10 or 12 different subcategories of that bird species. So it's like taking the 90 species of birds and multiplying it by five or 10 times. So you're really learning essentially 500 different species of birds. Um, and like you were exactly right in terms of identifying age and sex, migration characteristics, things like that. And our banders, they also go through a really rigorous training by phase. So they don't just start out handling birds. They first have to learn how to take a bird out of a net, which is a very delicate process for these small body passerines. And then they have to learn about all the identification characteristics while they're trying to hold that bird and handle that bird and not harm that bird. And then the really expert banders also become really good educators. So you mentioned earlier about visiting banding stations. We do do public programming once the pandemic is over. I encourage you to come out and check us out. But a lot of the public programming is actually run by our expert banders. So they also have to be able to talk to somebody and show someone while making sure the bird is unharmed at the same time. When you talk about a data set of 40 years with all of this bird banding data, is there anything interesting that jumps out as, at you as an important takeaway from that effort? Yeah, I think there's quite a few different things. So we've been able to look at trends of bird characteristics like wing length and things like that and how it changes with respect to development and climate change. We've been also recently partnering with Santa Clara University to get their students to analyze their data sets each year as part of their capstone projects. And more, most recently, we're working on a paper with one of those students. We're looking at how the restoration progress of Coyote Creek has aligned or not aligned with the trends we're seeing at the bird banding station. And what's really interesting is while the restoration has progressed, we actually see a decline in bird diversity and numbers at the banding station, which suggests that there's either a greater regional trend going on, which we know there is, um, that the restoration locally isn't quite addressing. So being able to look at those data sets, you can really ask a lot of questions in terms of timing and migration, also the morphological characteristics of the birds, since you are taking all those careful measurements. The other things that are more esoteric that people are interested in are looking at whether or not you can tell subspecies apart. So if you can actually measure that and the measurements would help you tell it apart or if you really need genetics to do that. And then more recently, we've also been uh, collaborating with another Santa Clara University professor on some genetics work. So we'll be looking at the diets of birds by collecting their poop in bags. So even though we have really long-term data sets, part of the challenge is that uh, our staff time is taken up by working with volunteers. And we've been trying to acquire more funding and more staff to actually take a deep dive into that data. So we've been able to do that more recently with collaborations, but it's really kind of the beginning of really diving into all that data. So we're really excited to see what it's going to reveal. The more data you have, the more questions that come about from it. So yeah, there's always more, always more to look into. Definitely. Let's talk about you for a minute, because as I mentioned in the intro, you have a really interesting background. You've done a lot of different things in your career. 
and maybe going way back even before your career, have you always been interested in nature and wildlife? I remember really being interested in environmental conservation at a young age. I remember doing like a project on blue whales in second grade or something, and then having really good teachers who really inspired us to care about the environment in middle school. I wasn't that much of an outdoorsy person. I grew up in the suburbs in Santa Clara. We would go camping sometimes and I would enjoy that, but it wasn't something that like learning about nature was something that was interesting, but not something that I understood that you could do as like a naturalist so that you could go out and collect plants or insects or go out and try to identify birds and things like that. So I would say as a kid, I cared about the environment, but I didn't really know anything about nature or the species that lived there. So was there a a moment or a top of head event that really made you realize that this was going to be the career for you? I think that happened in college, actually. So when I went to college, um, I decided to study neurobiology and behavior. And I was really interested in animal behavior and the brain. But then what happened is I went abroad to Australia and I took some field courses there, which were my first field courses, essentially. And I really found studying live animals instead of just looking at brain cells a lot more stimulating and exciting. And at that time, I'd done some internships where I had to sacrifice animals and cut up brains. And it just wasn't something that I was that interested in doing is continuing to kill a bunch of animals for science. Although I realized there's a reason and we learn a lot from it. It wasn't something that I really wanted to do for a career. But while I was in Australia, it was really great to look at this whole new set of animals. And it, it's kind of interesting. It took going to another continent and learning about marsupials to really realize, you know, how many animals are around in California or in the U.S. where I've been that I've just never noticed. So I had to go and essentially encounter a, an exotic fauna to learn about, to get the appreciation for the wildlife that's where I grew up. I see. Yeah. And Australia I just has such interesting and obvious and colorful wildlife that I can see where it would really grab your attention. One of the really pivotal moments when I was in Australia was that was the first time I actually used a field guide. And before then, I didn't actually know like how you would figure out what all these species are around you anyway. But that's where I actually learned to look at a field guide and recognize birds and know that there's actually, you know, this book that has 800 species in there is actually something that people like me, I could actually use it to interpret the things that I'm seeing around me. That was a really important, I guess, light bulb moment for me. I love field guides. I could see where that would also be part of the progression where you see all this in one nice handy book and starts to draw the connections. So, okay, you went to Australia and you had this change of direction. Did you, when you came back, did you change your major or what kind of happened next? Yeah, it was too late for me to change my major, but I did take some more ecology classes and conservation biology classes. I also, uh, being at Cornell, was able to take a birding class at the Lab of Ornithology. This is a class meant for what we call townies, which are the local people who live in Ithaca, but they allow some students to take it. So it was really great to be in that class because, again, I was using my new skills of learning how to use a field guide and applying them. And I was in kind of the you know, a really important place for ornithology and birding, which is the lab of ornithology without even knowing that it was such a key and pivotal place. Um, So I had no appreciation of that at all. But at the same time, I got to both do research there, learn from the experts there about birding, buy my first pair of binoculars and my first field guide. So it was really excellent experience. So then after that, you came back to the Bay Area, if I'm not mistaken, and walk me through what happened next. Sure. Yeah. So I always knew I was going to come back to California after college. And I did quite a few different jobs before going to grad school. Part of it was because I wanted to get more experience in the field. And also doing field work is really fun when you're young because you move to a different place every three or six months and you learn about a different species or set of species. So it's a really good and fun adventure. And at the same time, Since I wasn't an ecology major, I was learning about the types of questions people were asking and the types of research projects that were going on. And simultaneously, I was thinking about applying to graduate school and what I would study. 
something I've been wanting to ask you about is here in the Bay Area, I saw that you did some work on the Puma project. You know that the, the Pumas or mountain lions are one of those megafauna that captures people's interest kind of regardless of of what sort of interest they have in nature as a whole. Can you tell me about that project? The Puma project is a really great project. And I was lucky enough to start grad school when my advisor was starting that project. So I was able to jump on that project right away. And essentially, it was part, it was completely part of my graduate school experience, and it still continues today. The purpose of the Puma project is really to learn about how mountain lions are living and interacting with other species in the Bay Area, and also how they're being impacted by human development and human activity. For my PhD, what I ended up doing was use a lot of new technologies and not so new technologies to investigate all of those questions. So for example, we used GPS and accelerometer collars, which was a very new technology to study mountain lion behavior. GPS collars have been used for a while and they take data points of where the animal is every say five minutes or an hour or four hours. But accelerometers are the things that you have in your phones that tell your phone how you're orienting it. So the screen can change when you rotate the phone. So you put one of those in the collar and accelerometers actually record constantly. So they're recording 32 times or 64 times a second. And using that information, you can understand the orientation of the animal and also what the animal is doing 24 seven. So it's not just like six location points a day you have thousands of accelerometer readings per day that you can then use to parse out the behavior of the animal. The way we use that is we looked at how the animal behavior changed in different parts of the landscape. One of the things that we haven't really been able to investigate in wildlife is their energetics. Are they taking in more calories than they're expending in their daily lives? If they're using more calories than they're actually getting, then that animal is not going to do very well in terms of surviving or reproducing. And before having these accelerometer tools, we really couldn't answer that question because we just didn't have the energetic information. But now more and more, we're able to look at questions like that. So we can actually map what's called a caloric landscape and say, like, here is where the animal is really gaining calories. So it's doing well and can feed itself and grow. And these areas closer to people are where it's losing calories. And it's actually going to be a negative impact on its life to be in these parts of the landscape. Interesting. So you can kind of create a visual, uh, a map or something, and based on the behaviors of the different lions that you're tracking, start to draw those correlations. Yeah, you can do a lot of different things. So for example, we had a paper that came out where we looked at how a mountain lion spent energy in tracking down a prey. So you can follow it from 12 hours before it got the deer to the second that it actually attacks the deer and look at what kind of energy signature it expressed. Or you can look at how much it's moving and how much it's killing near humans versus further away to understand what trade-off it has if it has to live near or closer to humans. So if a lion is living closer to humans, is it generally uh, less active? Is it trying to stay lower profile? Yeah. So there's many different things that can happen to an animal that lives closer to a human. Um, We find that they actually will move more probably because they just get disturbed more. So they won't be able to stay in one spot for 12 hours. Like if you were a normal lion and you killed a deer, you might be able to just hang out there for three days and feed on it. But if you killed a deer next to someone's backyard, you might have to move away, you know, 20 hours a day and then come back to feed for only four hours at a time. That leaves your food vulnerable to scavengers or human dogs even will come and grab at bones from prey species. So then you might get less food from the, each animal that you kill. And you have to do more traveling between the site and wherever you're hiding out to actually access it. So you can see where that energetic trade-off might come. But if the deer are attracted to where people are because that's where the water is, then you might have to go out, go there, right? But you're not getting as much out of each individual deer you hunt as you would be if you were in the woods and you weren't getting disturbed. Yeah, that makes a lot more sense than what I was thinking. So (laughs) thanks for that. So jumping ahead a little bit, you're the executive director at SFBBO, and I want to kind of fill in the gap a little bit there from, from this graduate work to how you got to that position. What was it that you felt helped you prepare to lead an organization like this? What happened between your graduate program to today? 
I don't know that, you know, I was actually prepared, but I think it was a leap of faith on the board's part for hiring me. And also just some self-confidence on my part that I could do something like this. Part of being a grad student is carrying out your own projects and seeing them to fruition. So that aspect of it made me feel really prepared that I could lead something because I already had. The other part of grad school that I found really important is it teaches you, or at least I was taught that when I don't know things, I have to figure them out. And I learned the ways that you can figure things out either by using the internet or just talking to people and getting that help from the folks. So in that sense, I felt like, well, if I don't know how to do this job, I think I'm perfectly willing to ask for help and willing to learn, you know, how to do something new. Because essentially I've been doing that for, you know, six or seven years in grad school and as a postdoc. And how long now have you been in this current role? I've been with SFBBO for over five and a half years. What's been most surprising to you in this role? Like, I'm sure you had some sort of mental construct as to what it was going to mean to become the executive director, but there's always surprises. I'm curious what's been surprising for you. I think one thing that's really surprising is just the scope of the things they have to do. Um, You might imagine executive directors have to do a lot of high-level work, which I do, but because our organization is so small, I find that a substantial amount of my work is also focused on just like really small minutiae, like figuring out, you know, if we have the right office supplies or doing taxes, that kind of stuff. So a lot of running a small business, which I had no training in and had to just kind of learn, you know, I was hired to essentially make sure that our science was really strong and to bring in a strong science staff. But Um, a lot of what I've had to do is just general administrative work and making sure the organization runs. Of course, the pandemic was a surprise. So just learning that when these new things come up, I really enjoyed being a problem solver and figuring out, you know, what we're going to do to deal with these issues that come up and these problems and challenges has been really fun. And then learning that, you know, I have to plan for all these little things as well and keep track of like dozens of little things each week has been quite a challenge. The other thing that's been really new to me is just personnel management. And as a grad student, you don't really manage anyone except for interns. And that's quite a bit of a different experience than managing staff. And that's not necessarily surprising, but it was very new to me because I think in grad school, you operate under the, you just work when you need to work and you work as hard as you need to work. Whereas when I'm managing staff, I'm always trying to force them to have a better work-life balance and trying to make sure we don't overwork them and they stick within their hours. So it's a completely different philosophy than academia. Right. Different variables to optimize for. So you mentioned the pandemic and that really highlights the challenges of the last year and going back much longer than a year, really for probably as long as the U.S. has been in existence, there's been a lot of marginalized groups And some of those issues really came to a head last year as well. And I saw that last year, the SFBBO, you outlined 10 steps that you were taking in the next 12 months to be more purposeful in supporting and amplifying voices of marginalized communities. Can you tell me about that program and how it's worked out for you so far? Yes. Thank you for asking about that. So being a minority myself, diversity and equity have been really important to me throughout my career and to ensure that it's, you know, that I'm seeing, I'm living the values that I find important, both because I've experienced issues from being a minority myself, but also knowing like what challenges you actually face in order to get into a position where you can get a PhD or work in science or become a director. So for SFBBO, as director of SFBBO, I've always valued these diversity, equity, inclusion aspects. But what I've always done is kind of worked on it internally without explicitly writing down these ideas and what our goals are. What we learned last year is that it's really important not just to kind of work on it from the inside, but to be explicit and to be public about how you are as an organization. That way, when you probably can become more organized and you can work more collaboratively with other staff, on these issues, but also that you show the public that you're accountable and that, you know, you want them to 
hold you accountable. So we want our members and supporters to hold us accountable for these things. We don't want to say a statement that is then forgotten a year later, or we don't want to say something vague that then nobody can measure and say, were you actually successful in this? I don't know, because we can't measure or point to anything you're doing. So one of the things we're trying to do now is, or our staff are forming a committee. And what the committee is going to do is to reconsider our statement, which is now about almost a year old, and to evaluate what we're doing and how we're doing in terms of the promises that we made, and then also figure out what else is missing. Because when we made that statement, it was very explicit for racial justice. But of course, equity um, also applies to gender and sexual orientation and accessibility, things like that, right? So we want to make sure that we don't just forget about those other aspects and that we broadly address all aspects of equity. I see. So what should we expect then here in 2021? You have this committee that's uh, that's revisiting this. So does that mean an update is coming? Yes, I think that we are. we will probably be updating in the next few months. The way things work is that because we're doing it collaboratively and in a committee, things don't happen super quickly, right? So we have discussions and conversations. So I don't know how quickly things will change in terms of our statement and what we're going to be accomplishing. But that is our goal for this year. I'll also add that the board is also taking this on as well. And they are forming a kind of a mini board subcommittee to address a similar issue. And they will be coordinating and talking to the staff, the two board and staff diversity and equity um, committees will be talking to each other. Well, that sounds great. And I agree with you that being explicit in stating these things is really helpful. It's it's very easy to assume that by lack of saying something, then there's you know implicit support for something you actually disagree with. Do you have any other suggestions for, for say, other organizations that are perhaps looking to uh, define some of these same sorts of values for their groups? I think it's really important, especially if you don't have members of these communities in your leadership, to be introspective and consider what are some of the barriers that are preventing these people from joining your organization or becoming leaders or joining your board or joining your senior staff level. So I've just been reading this book, Invisible Women, which is about, it's about sex discrimination and all these things and data barriers and just not looking at the right data that have led to the world being designed with a male bias, essentially. And a lot of these things you wouldn't even consider or think about one because you might not be a woman, right? So you don't have that perspective. So I would say like, if you are an organization that doesn't have that perspective, then it's really important to understand what is preventing it. And it's important to figure out how you can bring that perspective into your organization without exploiting those people from those marginalized groups. Part of it is there's a really good training program from the Center for Excellence in Nonprofits, which is a a local nonprofit in the Bay Area that trains other nonprofit leaders. They have an equity, diversity, inclusion program training coming up. So if you don't have any of those voices within your organization, you could look to something like that, which could provide some of that information to you. And then if you do have voices, but there may be junior voices, then figuring out how you can give them the space to really talk to each other and give you suggestions and how you can respect those suggestions and make them feel like they'll be taken seriously or that they won't be penalized for bringing something up that might not be popular. I've been thankful that the company that I work for has a pretty strong DEI program. And one of the things that stands out to me, I took a unconscious bias training several years ago and refreshed it a few times. And it was just so eye-opening to me that these biases, uh, the statistics that they had across the organization, that, that almost everybody, including women, had unconscious bias about women. And it, it's drilled into us unknowingly from such a young age that, yeah, we have to actively work to overcome that. So thank you for taking a few minutes to talk about that. Sure. And I'm very glad to talk about it because it's very important to me and many of my closest friends. So you've been extremely generous with your time and you know, thank you for that. So to wrap things up, I have a few questions that I often like to ask. For the general public out there, what's one important ecological concept that you wish that they knew about that they could take into account on a daily basis? So one concept I'd like to highlight 
for folks is that nature doesn't operate on emotions. And what I mean by that is a lot of times people will come to us because they feel emotional about a bird getting killed or a baby bird being lost, and they want to eliminate all that. But from a conservation standpoint, those kind of things that happen in nature are completely natural. So we want to create a place where it's okay if baby birds get eaten, or it's okay if an adult gets killed in a fight with another adult, because those are natural behaviors. And I want to make sure that we don't impose our human values and emotions onto what animals are or aren't allowed to do. And I think that's something that's really tough for people who don't interact with animals, except to see them on cute TV shows or things like that, so that they only see the happy or cute aspects of it. But to really maintain an intact ecosystem, we need to know that animals can carry out the full aspects of their behavior, which include eating each other or fighting to the death and all those negative things that we don't see highlighted so much. Do you have any suggestions as to how to help normalize this normal behavior? That sounds kind of funny, normalizing normal behavior. But <laughs> I guess if you don't observe it, it doesn't seem normal. One of the things I was thinking about is I, there's this recent eagle cam where the chick, the eagle, the eaglet didn't hatch properly or died after hatching and the second egg didn't hatch. And that could be a really good opportunity to really just educate folks about why this is completely natural. And if the eagles are endangered, you know, that would be one thing. But if we want to create a place where the animals are conserved and their populations are doing well, then that's natural part of their life cycle. So I think another thing that happened, a lot of these cameras on nests are really good places to educate folks on those because a lot of bad things happen when you have a camera on a nest of baby birds, right? So sometimes they get eaten, sometimes they die, sometimes the siblings kill each other. So those are good places to let people know that, hey, these are normal behaviors. And this is why it's actually good if we see these behaviors and the population isn't endangered, it means that it can sustain itself and sustain all these natural aspects of their life cycle. And do you have any upcoming projects that you'd like to highlight? They could be personal projects or SFBBO? We have a couple of exciting educational projects, actually, that I want to highlight. One is we recently got a grant from the National Science Foundation to form a research conservation network with Stanford University, Santa Clara University, San Jose State University and West Valley College. And the purpose of this research coordination network is to use our field station, CCFS, as well as the Stanford field station at Jasper Ridge to bring more undergraduate field opportunities to the students in our area. So we're really excited to be starting that. Um, we've already brought in our network and brought in folks like from Cal Academy and UC Santa Cruz. And it's been a really great way to exchange ideas through the different institutions, as well as brainstorm ways that we can bring more ecological education to students, especially in person once the pandemic is over. And we're applying for a full five-year funding grant next year. So hopefully it'll get funded and we'll be able to do more of that. That's exciting for sure. There's, yeah. there's so many undergrads that are struggling to find you know, local work or meaningful work. So that sounds great. Yeah, and CCFS is just located in such a great location. It's really close to Santa Clara and San Jose State and to lots of the community colleges as well, and not too far from Stanford. We actually have some of our volunteers and staff banding out at Stanford too and help them kind of create a couple of banding stations that this undergraduate Julian Tatoni set up. I think I interrupted you. Uh, there was another project that you were about to talk about. Yeah, the other projects that we've been working on are with Marshmallow Minds, which is another nonprofit that focuses on design-based thinking. And they work primarily with elementary school kids. So we've been able to work with them to build some bird-centered curricula, um, which we delivered virtually to schools. And it's included little programming kits that the elementary school students can use. And we got some more grants this year to do more of this content. And also, hopefully, by the later half of the year, we'll be able to do some of it in person, too. Sounds like another great project. Yiwei, is there anything else that you wanted to talk about while we have this opportunity? I think the only other thing I would recommend is that if you have any interest 
in learning about the environment around you or in volunteering, please do join us on one of our public talks or walks and also come join us as a volunteer. We have a lot of volunteering opportunities that are for people who have no experience at all. And if you're really interested, you know, you can also join us as one of the more um, hardcore volunteers who come out every week or every couple of weeks and do bird surveys or bird banding as well. We have a ton of opportunities and we're also always looking for feedback or suggestions on what else we can do to improve either our science or our education or our diversity inclusion efforts. Any of those, we're all very open-minded folks and we love getting feedback from people. So I'll only ask that, you know, more people contact us, tell us what you think. We have lots of ways for you to do it. And this is a nonprofit, which means it's an organization meant to serve you as a community. So we really want the community to give us, to tell us how we're doing and what else they want to see. All right. And I'll make sure to include links to how to get connected with you and your organization. And speaking of that, so if people want to follow you or your work, where can they go? Yeah. Well, most of my stuff, I try to channel through our official SFBBO communications. So I'm sure Michael will put those links up, but we have at SFBBO Twitter, at Birds SF on Facebook, and at SFBBO on Instagram. And I do some tweeting, but it's not necessarily related to work. Like I said, I try to keep that to the official channels. Um, but you could also follow me at Weiwei82 on Twitter. That's W-E-I-W-E-I-82. And I do have a website that's not very updated. So you can check it out as well. And I'm I always have a plan each year to update it, but then I never get around to it. So you can definitely visit my website, but it might be like four years or five years outdated. Yeah, it's easy for that to happen. Okay, well, I really do appreciate you taking the time and giving us the peek behind the curtains of an organization like SFPBO. It was very interesting to me. Uh, and I will make sure to include links to all the things we talked about, including those wonderful birdie hour talks that relate to the conversation we have. So Yuei, thank you so much. I hope you had a good time. Thank you, Michael. It was really fun. We live in a world where sound bites dominate and true understanding is shrinking. Nature's Archive podcast digs a little bit deeper, hoping to help the world understand nature just a little bit more. I hope that this podcast has planted a seed of interest that will grow into something special for you. I record, produce, edit, and publish a show by myself as a personal passion. If you enjoyed the show, please rate it on iTunes or your favorite podcast service, and then please turn around and share this episode with a friend or a family member that you think might like it. I'm not asking for money or donations, just a gift of sharing. Thanks for your support. You can also follow me on Instagram at Nature's Archive or Facebook, also Nature's Archive. In addition to sharing information about podcasts at those locations, I also share some of my photography and some short explanations of what I'm seeing. Lastly, if you have any suggestions for guests or topics for me to cover, please email me at naturesarchivepodcast at gmail.com. Thank you. And one last word, I want to make sure to give credit to the music that you hear in the podcast. The opening song is called Fearless First by Kevin McLeod, and the closing song is called Beauty Flow, also by Kevin McLeod. You can find his work at incompetech.filmmusic.io.